0: So, I I was looking at this thing and I saw this up here. So, that's going to be a short sermon. I don't know who put it up here, but thanks for the reminder. Um, I'll do my best. I used to um, street witness when I first became a Christian. I don't say preach because we didn't really stand on boxes, we more like come up and talk to people. It was awkward, but preaching the gospel is awkward. Think of Jesus at the, with the woman at the well. He says, I am. <laughs> this is the way he starts preaching the gospel to her. It is so um, uncomfortable. I love it. But, uh, so we used to go out. And as you go out, you learn how to address people and get good conversations going. And over time, we found that two powerful questions to get conversations going in the right direction. Uh, where what is wrong with the world? And how can we fix it? You now, I always ask people that. It's good. You can use it in a workplace. You'll get, you'll get to their basic worldview really quick. And I always say things like war, poverty, hunger. And those are bad things, right? War is terrible. Poverty isn't the best usually. And hunger is certainly terrible. And so those are the things you think needs to be fixed in the world. War, poverty, hunger. Yeah, sure. Okay. How do we fix it? How do we fix them? Well, education. Education, okay. So educated people don't fight wars, is what you're saying? If we just get everyone textbooks and computers and internet, suddenly the war is going to come to an end, is what you're going to say? Right? People won't be hungry anymore. You know, a lot of people that starved in northern Africa, it wasn't that there wasn't food. It was, was, was gangsters out there not letting them get the food. Guess what the gangsters had? That technology, guns, bombs, power, technology is going to save the world. That's going to fix everything. Have you heard of World War II? Now, we wouldn't get that aggressive. I'm behind a pulpit, and this is how you talk when you're behind a pulpit sometimes. But we would point that out to them, right? And the takeaway is... um, when we don't understand what the real problem is, we won't understand what the right solution is either. The real problem is sin, right? That's, that's why education, technology, money, that sort of things won't fix it. Even though they have their value in the economy of God. And that's what I want to... I'll come back to that in a little bit. First, let me give you some background on our long passage. Um, the first portion of this chapter ca- contains two notable miracles... Uh, the first miracle is in verses 1 through 14. It's where Jesus multiplies the bread and fish to feed a hungry crowd of thousands, ton of people there. A little kid brings up his, uh, his snack, and then Jesus feeds all of them. And there's more fragments left over than there uh, initially were to feed them. It's, it's amazing. And then after he feeds them, they're thinking, we like this prophet. They say, oh, you are the prophet. And then they decide, we're going to make him king. But Jesus didn't want to be king enthroned that way. So he slips away to be by himself. And then his disciples, they go out into the sea, I guess the Sea of Galilee. And they get about three or four miles out in the middle of the sea. And there's a strong wind and a storm starts happening. And they get really scared. And then they get even scared, even more scared, right? They look out there and there's a guy walking on the water. Now, I don't know if you know this, that's not normal, right? That actually doesn't happen very often. People don't walk on the water. And um, so they were really freaked out. And then he said, hey, it's me. It's Jesus. And they let him into the boat. And then suddenly, not only is the storm done, but they're, they're where they're supposed to be. Like just moves through space somehow. I don't know. It's, a, it's miraculous. And then all the people that were listening to him speak prior to going across the sea, they start looking for him. They go around the sea. Some of them get in boats and come across and that gets us up to uh, our passage. And just look at verse 25. I didn't read it, but it's important. Um, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? That's a nice greeting, I think. It's a good way. Hey, how did you get here? We didn't see you get into a boat. How would you get there? And Jesus, this is what he says in this first section that I want to point out. And what we find is people diligently seeking Jesus but for the wrong reason. So when they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. I want you to note two things. First, note that Jesus fully understands the motives and nature of men. All of mankind is driven by very basic desires, People aren't complicated. You're not complicated. You're not deep. That's just a a smoke screen. God is deep. Man's not. Man's simple. We want food, safety, comfort, pleasure, and to be loved. And these are the motives behind most of all our actions. It's all very basic, and so it is here. These men, what they wanted was bread. They wanted food. That's why they were seeking Jesus. And it would be easy to despise these men. It would be very easy. You just want him for food? But I read that for the most part, it took about 80% of their money and time to have enough food just to survive back then. Our wealth has blinded us in the States. We have so much, and we come by it rather easily. Uh, Very, very few Americans starve, no matter what The bleeding hearts want to tell you. Um, Matter of fact, the poor in our land are dying from obesity. How about that? But it was a real threat for them. And a good portion of the world, it's still a good threat. Starvation, that is. Now think about God's curse on mankind in Genesis 3. Listen to what he says to Adam. Um, Curse is the ground because of you. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you'll eat the plant of the fields. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Food is a need and one that's hard to come by. It's a true need. The lack of it causes death. You die when you don't eat. And that's the problem. And they saw Jesus as a solution to the problem. Jesus could generate bread whenever they needed it. And that would solve 80% of their immediate problem. Right? Right? And that's why they're so stuck on this point. They try everything to figure out how to get more bread. This is one of my favorite back and forths in scripture because it's really funny. Um, and it does remind me of, of, of street witnessing, honestly. Um, Jesus warns them uh, not to work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures eternal life. They reply, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God by the works of God? They mean bread, the miracle of generating bread. That's what they're after. Okay, uh, yeah, so okay, don't work for the stuff that perishes. This is really good bread, loaded with preservatives, I guess. Um, How do we get that? How do we do that? And uh, Jesus says, um, he knows what they're thinking, but he continues to make his point. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. They again try to redirect the conversation towards bread, and they even up their game by quoting the Bible. That always helps to have a little, you know, a little scripture in there. Um, they said, uh, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them bread out of the heaven to eat. And I recall hearing the heretic Benny Head. You guys know who that guy is? Yeah, has slays people in the spirit. He does that because the way he combs his hair, he gets that real powerful wrist action. Um, I remember him saying once, we used to watch him, they make fun of him before, when I was a pagan. We used to watch TBN and we thought it was hilarious. And we're like, man, Christians are idiots. That's what we used to think. But I watched him once and he said, I don't need gold in heaven. I got to have it now. Heavenly bread? I need real bread. That is the mind of these men. That's what they're after. Right? They're using scripture. They're trying to push Jesus to do a miracle, trying to get him to give them more bread. It is the mind of us before God, uh, before God calls us to himself too. We are only focused on our immediate needs, our temporal needs. We don't think of our soul or our eternal needs for many Christianity is about now and not about forever. It's about what I can get now. So you can seek Jesus for the wrong reason. This is something that needs to be said in the South and Midwest, especially where we have people that name Christ, but they're, they're falling, falling. I have to put scare quotes, Christ, uh, not for himself. All right. It's not that bread lacks importance. As I've said without it you you die. You have to eat food. But there's a second death that's much much worse than the first. And all mankind is desperately clinging to this life in a vain attempt to delay the inevitable, which is death. And you will die. You'll die very soon. This is moving quick. The order you get the quicker it goes. People need to hear that all the time. We talked about loving your parents in a Sunday school, the fifth commandment. And I think one of the main things that motivates us to stick people away in old people's homes is we just don't want to be reminded of death. I want to think about it. And Jesus is the solution to the real problem. Life is slipping away towards death. And another loaf of bread cannot stop that. Bread. Cannot stop that. The heavenly bread, however, can. Jesus says, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Second, I want you to note how confrontational Jesus is with these false seekers. He just He doesn't play. He isn't interested in a show. You won't find the meek and mild, like hippie life coach Jesus in Scripture. At every single turn, Christ confronts people. He's always confronting them. A Christ-like ministry is a confrontational ministry. A Christ-like church is a confrontational church. Why? Because the stakes are high. It's not high if it's a club, a social club. But we're talking about eternal the eternal destiny of people. People get it into their head that Jesus was only confrontational with Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and lawyers. You know, self-righteous people. Not people like me, right? You are the Pharisees. Can't, you're the bad guy in every single text of scripture. That's who you are. It's like my favorite point. I make it every time I'm up here. That is who you are. When you read it, put yourself in that place. The righteous people are rebuking you, generally, okay? But not at all. Jesus isn't just after scribes and Pharisees. He's always confrontational. As the kids say, he has no chill. He never lets up. Yes, he somewhat modulates his intensity based on his audience. But he is always calling people to repentance and faith. Always. He will not play. And false brethren hate that. They just want to come to church and play. They can't stand the realness. I, usually when churches talk about being real, that's the, that's the place it's safe to go be fake. That's what we always used to say, right? Uh, that's the old Shakespeare. Me doth think the lady protests too much. Anytime a church is always talking about realness. Every time I go to the churches, they got great coffee, uh, but bad sermons. Um, a good church, you have okay coffee, good sermons. (laughs) Coffee's all right. After a good sermon, people say, that sermon made me feel bad. They might, like, couch it this way or that way. Made me feel uncomfortable. Well, you are bad. Now rest in Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. That's what we do. We confront each other in love. Christianity isn't a feel-good after-school special. If you want uplifting stories with some easy, simple moral lesson at the end, watch Dora the Explorer. That's how childish this is. You want uh, the truth you so badly need, then come to a true church. And people will confront you all the time. You have to go easy on people when they first come, right? Ease them into it. Well, we're going to talk to you about your soul. Because that's what we do. That's what this is all about. That's what Jesus has instituted his church to do. They wanted bread. That's all they wanted. Jesus said, no, you need to work for the food which endures the eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. How do you work for it? He said, you believe in him whom he has sent. He's preaching the gospel to them. Some churches are just confrontational, but they never preach the goodness of the gospel. Jesus is turning them away from something that will lead to, to death to something that will lead to life. And then they say, Lord, always give us this bread. Still not tracking it. Gives you hope, right? When you read in scripture, how dim-witted the, the apostles can be. Might um, also... John's full of this stuff. John 4, when uh, the woman says she's not married and Jesus says, yeah, that's right. You're not married. You got four or five other husbands. And then she says, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> oh, you think? <laughs> it was wonderful. Oh, they still don't get it. But why? And that gets us to verses 35 through 47. In this section, we find why people truly seek Jesus. Jesus says, but I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now think on that for a moment. Think how crazy that is. These people initially started following Jesus back in the previous chapter. Because they saw him healing the sick. Doing incredible miracles. That's why this big crowd follows him out into the wilderness. And then they follow him out there. And then he, makes, he just makes bread and fish multiply. So they see that. And then uh, they hear him preach. I guarantee it's better than this, better than what Andrew does. They hear Jesus preach. That's the sermon they sat underneath. Not only do they hear him preach, but some of them dialogue back and forth. So they actually go back and forth with Jesus, the maker of all things. Yet they still don't believe. I think that's incredible. And the answer to unbelief isn't evidence or sly arguments not why people believe. It's not to say that those things have no place. They do. But man's underlying issue isn't intellectual. It's spiritual. It's moral. Namely, man is dead to the things of God. He is dead. And that's why all these guys, when they see Jesus, they don't see hope. They see a meal ticket, right? Jesus is explaining in great detail who he is and why he has come. He's not really being, um, he's not speaking in parables here so much. It's pretty straightforward. Except when he gets to the bread, I get it. There's a little bit of, you know, parable going on there. But he says, listen, uh, he says, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that uh, all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But I raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. He was sent by the Father to save the elect. He came to give the elect eternal life. The elect. Why do we emphasize the elect? Well, because that's what Jesus means in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The doctrine of election is very scriptural. John 6 we can't cover it all you'll see it as we go through it quick John 6 is full of deep theology I mean you could do a sermon series on John 6 for months easily God according to his own good pleasure has elected to save some and pass over others It's what the Bible teaches We call this doctrine usually what we call as unconditional election It's election because God chooses It's unconditional because his choice isn't based on anything that resides in those whom he chooses he doesn't choose because you're a good person. No one's good, is what Scripture says. God has, God's not partial like man is. God chooses according to his wisdom, his own good pleasure. I don't know. The, the problem isn't um, why, do, why do bad things happen to good people. Right? There's just, there aren't good people. It's why do good things happen to anyone? And if God has set his mercy upon you, the goodness of all good things, has happened to you. I know goodness is not a word. Um, The choice is his to make and he makes it according to his purposes. Also note that Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And here we find the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. If God elects some to be saved, they will continue to the end. I often say I don't believe in one saved always saved, but if saved always saved, right? Once saved always saved is kind of how the Baptists, like the Armenian Baptists, will um, phrase it. In other words, you can get if you get saved, you can just go and do whatever you want and and live this crazy, scandalous life, and you're truly saved, right? And just uh, you can even <laughs> deny Jesus, but since you went to you know uh, some altar call at summer camp 30 years ago. We used to run into that when we'd street witness, right? These guys literally selling drugs to kids. I'm like, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I'm a Christian. <laughs> no, no, you're not. You're a drug dealer and you need to repent. And but they would think, well, I, oh, how dare you judge me? I, I went up and I, I prayed. Um, but if saved, always saved. There could be dips in your walk with God, but God will preserve you. Philippians 1, 6 says, for I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. If salvation is the work of God, and it is, it cannot be lost because God cannot fail. Right? Salvation could only fail if it depended on you. I think it's MacArthur that says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. It's a nice little quip. All those the Father gives Jesus will be raised on the last day. No one can pluck them from their hands. And this wonderful message of salvation that Jesus gives them is met with unbelief. And that shows you that they are kind of tracking. Right? They kept pushing them for, for the, the bread, trying to get the bread. But ultimately, they are tracking at some level. Because at that point, they say, uh, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? So a couple of things there. I mean, we could go on that one a long time. This, this shows that Jesus is not some mere man, mere man. You'll hear people try to say that Jesus is a good moral teacher. They have not read scripture. Jesus has come down from heaven. Now, in our natural fallen state, we hate truth. We hate true doctrine. People hate the doctrines of election and perseverance because they're humbling. I, I fought against them for a long time. I just, anytime, you know, Ephesians 1 came and Ephesians 2, just turn those pages really quick. In Romans 9, that was an accident or something, right, Just skip over it. I just avoid them and not want to talk about them because I had no answer for them. And they're just very humbling because we we all want to believe that we have something to do with our salvation. But salvation totally depends on the work of God. This message is foolishness and a stumbling block to unbelievers, to those who have no life in them. Which is the issue, right? How do dead men become alive if coming alive requires something dead men can't do? See, you know the analogy, like Jesus is throwing you a life preserver and all you have to do is reach out and grab it. And you'll be saved, right? Grabbing is taking it by faith well, you're a swollen, dead body floating around in the water, right? They don't grab anything. They're dead. Um, So what's one to do? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We call this drawing of the Father the doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual calling. the shorter catechism, guys got to study this, you, uh, you men especially. When your kids are reciting the children's catechism, you should push you to work at the shorter catechism, right? It's very helpful. Question 31 defines effectual calling this way. Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us To embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. It is only God's initiating work that allows us to embrace the gospel. Um, And listen to Ephesians 2. This is one of my favorite passages on this as well. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. We were dead. He made us alive. God made us alive, and living people rightly respond to the invitation of the gospel. The gospel call goes out to everyone. Sometimes we call it the general call. We preach it to everyone, but God, in His wisdom, makes it effectual, effective, makes it work in those He has marked as His elect. So then uh, why preach? This is where it always goes, and that's how people get saved. Why preach? Well, one, because Jesus did. And he commands us to do likewise. Jesus preached the gospel. We see him preaching to people right now full of hard hearts that aren't getting it. So we should preach because he does. But secondly, because God works through means of preaching. Like I said, he calls out his elect through our evangelism. And that's very encouraging. The results don't depend on us. I remember a friend of mine, the one that got me into doing street preaching, kind of had a breakdown at one point. Because of the people that wouldn't convert, that wouldn't respond to the gospel. He just, he was broken over them going to hell. And he was tempted to get more and more manipulative. And try to twist their arm into making some sort of profession. But this doctrine, it comforts us. The results don't depend on us. We just preach the message of the gospel. And the spirit will work through it according to his, his will. God is using you to condemn people sometimes. Like he used Moses to condemn Pharaoh. As Moses called Pharaoh to repent, Pharaoh's heart was hardened all the more by the word. So others, he's using you as a, a means to lead them to salvation. When you preach to them, their hearts soften. Right? The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. And um, so the results don't depend. Just preach and leave the results with God. In verse 48 through uh, 58, in this final section, we find the benefits of the bread of life. And first, let's tackle what he isn't talking about. And I'll I'll probably revisit it some tonight. This passage just isn't talking about the Lord's Supper. It's not. And I get why people think that. Verse 55 says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper. Uh, But that's not what's going on here. And Ryle has really good um, expository notes on all the Gospels. You Just Google Ryle John or Matthew if you're ever studying in your own time. He says, uh, for one thing, a literal eating and drinking of Christ's body and blood would have been an idea utterly revolting to all Jews and flatly contradictory to often repeated precepts of the law. Uh, cannibalism's not okay uh, with anyone, and certainly not okay. In scripture, like actual cannibalism. Seems to make sense, right? For another thing, to take a literal view of eating and drinking is to interpose a bodily act between the soul of man and salvation. This is a thing for which there is no precedent in scripture. The only thing without which we cannot be saved are repentance and faith. So this is where a lot of people are tempted. They want to think that God communicates uh, God communicates life merely through some material thing, right? That it has to be a vessel, like a conduit. And uh, that's God, God's spirit, when he calls us, works directly upon our soul to regenerate us. And he does work through his word, but it's not through anything with matter, even though that once we come to know him, There is legitimate spiritual power in the sacraments, right? Um, That's not what's going on here. Last but not least, to take a literal view of eating and drinking would involve most blasphemous and profane consequences. It would shut out of heaven the penitent thief. He died long after these words were spoken without any little eating and drinking. Will any dare to say he had no life in him? It would admit to heaven thousands of ignorant, godless communicants in the present day. They literally eat and drink, no doubt, but they have no eternal life and will not be raised to glory at the last day. Let these reasons be carefully pondered. In other words, there's in our in our uh, confession, we make it very clear that grace and salvation isn't so inseparably annexed to baptism or the Lord's Supper that you can't be regenerate without it. Right. Matter of fact, there's a lot of people that aren't able to partake of the sacrament for one reason or another, who are truly saved. And there's even more people that partake of baptism in the Lord's Supper and are not saved, right? They're not regenerate. They don't know the Lord. And Ryle, who's uh, in the Church of England, is trying to protect against that. Now, um, now, let's consider what it is about. What is Jesus talking about in these final verses? He's talking about the glorious doctrine of union with Christ. The book Redemption Accomplished and Implied talks a lot about that by John Murray. I recommend it. Really short and easy to read. Uh, Burkhoff defines union with Christ this way <clears throat> as that, <clears throat> that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people. In virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength and of their blessedness and salvation. Jesus came to give us abundant life. Not the temporary sort of life that comes from having bread. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. They had bread. God fed them. You know, again, miraculously through manna falling down and they were able to to eat and stay alive during um, the Exodus. But all those men died. The life he gives is eternal. He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So how do we eat the bread then? If the bread is not literal here, how do we eat it? How do we partake? Well, the bread is clearly referring to the work Christ accomplished on the cross. He says, I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. His work of atonement. The eating clearly refers to faith or believing. Remember, Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, belief in Jesus leads to life, everlasting life, perfect life. He is the solution to our deepest problem. Our sins are placed on him on the cross, and his righteousness is imputed to us. Now, for some of y'all, this is basic doctrine. I get it. But it is glorious. It is the cornerstone of our religion that God has made us right through his son. We are alive. Some of you have grown up in Christian homes. Praise God. But those of you that haven't can remember a time where there were scales on your eyes. A time where you couldn't see. A time when you were dead. I don't know about you. There's a weirdness about those years before Christ kind of like fuzzy, misty, like a dream. And everything changed after coming to him. There's a big difference between being dead and alive. Christ gives us his life. Think about bread. What does bread do? Right? You eat bread, and the bread gives you life. Right? Some of us eat maybe too much bread, and we have a lot of life concentrated in certain areas. Um... But that, that analogy is there on purpose. That Jesus is bringing life into us, communicating it into you. Read, let um, me get a chance. I we won't do it now, but go through Ephesians and look how many times he says, In him. In him we are redeemed. In him we have this inheritance. We've been brought into Christ. And being united with him, we have this hope, this life, this confidence. We see, we know life isn't just about bread. I'd rather starve than deny Christ. And that's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because I used to be willing to deny Christ for a piece of gum. So this is talking about salvation, right? So it has nothing to do with us. We've already been saved. You're at church. I'm preaching to the choir, right? I think it has a lot to do with us. I think we spend a lot of our time saying, give us, Lord, our daily bread. But not the first part of the Lord's prayer. Hallowing the Father, seeking after Jesus. Augustine talks about there's something about just seeking Jesus for Jesus' sake. Who said this? I think someone said this at Men's Triple B. Talked about the difference in just saying the name Jesus. How powerful, how personal. And we are brought into relationship with Christ. We're united with him. We have fellowship with him. We can just get so weighed down with bills and worries. Jesus spends a lot of time on it, Sermon on the Mount, chapter six. Don't worry about all those things. Right? Let the day, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow's worry. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. God is calling us to have a priority. To be seeking Jesus. How do we do that? How do we feed? Will we feed by the means of grace? By coming to scripture? Now ask yourself, on Thursday, just think of Thursday. You got it in your head? You with me? Did you study God's word? Don't answer. Just ask yourself. And Wednesday, what sort of prayer? Was it just to make sure the food would nourish you to your body? That's our most common prayer, right? If we don't do that, we won't be able to get protein, I guess. Um, Look at your past week. Are you feeding? Don't judge like in a month everyone grades on a curve. Yeah, I've been in the Word, I've been in prayer. Are you feeding? You wonder why you're weak? You don't have enough food. You need more food. God communicates to us these wonderful blessings through His Word. He works in us through His Word, through prayer, through fellowship. We try to make it easy on you. We have a Sunday morning service, evening service, and Wednesday we have a corporate. Do a little of the heavy lifting there. Make sure that stuff's happening. That's one way to do it. But it's real easy to... Go to Drudge Report or whatever website you find out the latest terrible thing that's happening. You know, it's really easy to do that and not spend time in God's word. Fifteen minutes a day is the Bible in a year. Five minutes a day in prayer will make a big difference. Oh, let's be strong. Let's be alive. God has given us so much. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Don't let the troubles of this life cloud your vision. You need bread. You do. If you need the bread of life, you need it all the more. It's a simple exhortation, but it is everything. Are you feeding? Let's pray again. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that we are not dead, that we are alive. Thank you for your great mercy, your grace poured out on us in Jesus. Thank you that you've given us eyes to see, ears to hear. Thank you that our heart beats, not after the flesh, not after sin, but that old stony heart's been ripped out and replaced with a heart of flesh that lives for you. Oh, Father, I pray that we would um, nurture that, feed that. Strengthen us, Lord, by your word. Strengthen us through prayer. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints, for men and brothers who rebuke and exhort us. To walk in line with your gospel, that call us away from the wisdom of the world to your unfading, unchanging, everlasting word that is sure, more sure than the very foundations of this earth. Thank you for the gift of new life. Thank you for union with your Son. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.